Welcome to Life After Business, the podcast, where I bring you all the information you need to exit your company and explore what life can be like on the other side. This is Ryan Tansom, your host, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome back to the Life After Business podcast. This is Ryan Tansom here. Today's guest's name is Kenyon Blunt. I met Kenyon through our relationship at the Value Builder System with John Warlow. Kenyon shares with us his story about how he started a marketing agency that specifically worked with banks, grew it for 13 years, tried to sell it twice. By the time he sold it, he was dropping $2 million to the bottom line in pre-tax income and ended up selling it to his partner because he was burnt out and he ended up writing a book called Unstuck about this exact situation, which I think is a fantastic topic he's addressing. So after he sold to his partner, he ended up going and partnering up with a private equity firm to do a turnaround that ended up taking him seven years where he learned a lot more and then ended up selling another business And today, he's applying all of his skills and wisdom and the Rockefeller habits to a handful of clients that are lucky enough to have him. So I really hope you enjoy this interview with Kenyon. He's got tons of experience and he shares a lot about multiple exits and his experience going through them. This episode of Life After Business is sponsored by The Valley Advantage. The Valley Advantage is a platform delivered via peer groups and or one-on-one to help you build a valuable company that can thrive without you while putting an exit plan in place so you have the options to sell when you want, to who you want, for how much you want. You're able to manage the business by the numbers, work in the business as much or as little as you want, and you fully understand how the business impacts your personal financials. If you want to know more, check out the show notes or the website. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy the interview. Good morning, Kenyon. How are you doing? Uh, good morning, Ryan. I'm great. I uh, Looking forward to this uh, call today. You've got a very interesting background, and you and I met through a mutual connection at the Value Builder System, where we both kind of... I've dove into the John Warlow philosophy of business and value building, but you've got your own exit story that I'm looking forward to hearing. So for the sake of our listeners, can you kind of just bring us back to the day that you decided to become an entrepreneur and how you jumped into running your business? Um, Sure. Um, This was a long time ago, Ryan, so I'm a little older than you are, but um, I was... uh, working at a bank and I was in charge of marketing for the bank. And, um, this is in the late 1990s. And about that time, you banks started getting into marketing before that time, they didn't know what marketing was. And they, um, a, a relational database was kind of invented and I took the database and applied it at the bank I was working at. And, uh, got fairly successful at, you know, bringing in new customers and cross-selling existing customers using uh, this database. And so that was kind of the birth of database marketing. So I decided to leave the bank and start my own company, which was called Bullseye Database Marketing. And like a lot of entrepreneurs, I went out to friends and family and borrowed the money and maxed out my credit cards and um, hired a few friends. And anyway, we started the business and uh, it grew pretty quickly because uh, the kind of era of bank marketing was just about taking off at that point. So were you, were you marketing for banks or was it you know, a lot of different industries or what was your primary client base? No, I was marketing for banks. Um, so uh, I would get a copy of their database. Now with the new privacy laws, that would be almost impossible today. <laughs> I was going to say uh, 
but I'd have a copy of their customer database and then I'd do different statistical analysis and things on the database and profile who they should target to cross sell to and then find their best customers and then find prospects who look like them. And anyway, we'd go out and implement direct marketing programs, which at that time was pretty much direct mail Mm -hmm. um, for the banks and we'd implement them for the banks. So we were a, a database marketing agency. So then, you know, I mean, you had the the business for about 13 years, right? Correct. So, you know, what was the the growth? I mean, at when that at the time of sell, what was the size of the business and as far as employees? I mean, if you're willing to disclose revenue. Sure. Well, we started out and I had a couple of my ex uh, employers as clients. So that kind of helped us get out of the chute. You know, I hired a couple of people, as I just mentioned, fairly soon um, to do the work. And uh, those were people I'd worked with in the past. And it grew, I guess, in the first couple years, we got it to like a million in revenue. Maybe that was after the second year. So, you know, it wasn't doing too badly. Although at that time, I've, you know, we were losing money. So I had to go out and get some additional investors. And, you know, a lot of you guys who started that way know what that's all about. But, can I put a pause there for a second? I'm just sure. kind of curious because I've had this conversation with a couple other individuals on this show where, you know, as you're in the quote unquote startup phase like that, I mean, there's a very good chance you're rolling a lot of the money or doubling down on the investments and in infrastructure and stuff. When, what kind of investors did you go get and how did you value the company in order to, and what, how, how, how did their arrangement work with them? Sure. Well, I, uh, I initially started out, I had them do, you know, had to make either $5,000 or $10,000 loans to me. And I gave them an equity kicker of one or 2% because I was trying to hold on to as much equity as possible. And so these were two year notes. Um, So they all came due at the end of the second year, which things were just, we were just starting to turn it around, you know, get it kicked up. But I didn't have the cash to pay the two year notes back. So at that time, I went to the investors who were mostly friends of mine, um, and I said, hey, would you like to you know, kick in some more money? I'll give you additional equity. Um, and a couple of them held my feet to the fire you know, and wanted to be paid out. And, uh, by hook or by crook, I was able to pay them off. Um, but for the most part, they all took a little additional equity and you know, forgave my loan. And anyway, some of them even kicked in some more money. So anyway, we were able to make it mm-hmm. through. Or, or cash crisis, I guess. Which, you know, welcome to small businesses, right? <laughs> right, exactly. But I found that kind of, um, I've heard other people refer to this, but when you get from like three to six employees, um, I've heard it called the black hole. Um, I couldn't agree more, man. It's just, it, it, you have to have that many employees to grow, but you're not quite big enough yet to get those economies. Mm-hmm. So, so. Well, how did you end up getting through the black hole? Well, um, about that time. So, uh, you know, we had chatted in the past, but, you know, sometimes you look back on the things that went right. And one thing that we did is we had one of our clients go to a mutual fund company and mutual funds were just starting to take off right now. And so anyway, we followed our client, which is not always a good idea, by the way is, you know, going where your clients take you. Mm-hmm. But, um, in this case, it worked out great because we got into a new industry that was just starting to boom. So anyway, then we started developing expertise in a second vertical, which was mutual funds. And that's when we really took off. 
Interesting. Well, and, and I want to actually dive in a little bit more into, cause when you said following your clients isn't always good. And I know because your current profession, can you elaborate a little bit more on why that might not be a good idea? Sure. Well, yeah, you and I both studied John Murillo. He has one philosophy he calls the owner's trap. And that is where, you know, your good clients, especially when you're small, keep asking you to do more and more things. And it gets you out of your core competency a lot of times. And you get spread way too thin, um, both as an owner and your whole company. So you get way too many products and you're spread too thin. They rely on the owner to do a lot of those new products. Um, so sometimes it can take you in the wrong direction. When I reflect back on mine, um, now I know what, what happened. It was called an adjacency strategy. I'd never heard that term before. But, you know, when you're looking to expand, you go to that next vertical that's adjacent to the one that you're in. So mutual uh, funds is adjacent by one one move away from banking. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's a great way to expand. I didn't know it was called that at the time. We just happened to get lucky. So. When it was a, it was a good move, obviously. So that the adjacency strategy helped to get through the black hole. So where where did the the business take you over the next few years? Then, as you continued to grow in that sector, um, well, we got up and for about you know I, I, what I say thirteen years. Uh, so ten of those years, we were pretty consistently around the five to seven million dollar revenue uh, mark. But we had at, at those times we had really tremendous gross profits. So we were taking, you know, two million of that to the bottom line every year. Um, I brought in a partner, a woman I used to go to business school with, and we were consistently doing that kind of during that whole period. Um, but anyway, if you read my book and you've talked to me a little bit, mm-hmm. I, I just kind of got burned out. Um, when I had a partner who didn't want to expand, she was comfortable making that kind of money. You know, there are new things like email marketing coming about, and I wanted to get more involved in which now is called big data, but doing statistical analysis. Anyway, uh, we so, couldn't. Well, I, I, that, that's interesting because so was that was that partner one of the original partners in the, in the, uh, the investors? No, she wasn't an original investor, but I brought her in about year two. Okay. Um, when I, we, you know, landed the new mutual fund client, I just couldn't handle it by myself. So what were the, you know, when did you realize that you guys were kind of in different visions or different, you know, mindsets? Well, probably when I met her in graduate school, (laughs) (laughs) but, um, but it actually worked for the most part. It worked out. Okay. I mean, she's very detail oriented. I'm like, you know, most CEO entrepreneur types, kind of more vision marketing oriented. And it was a good counterbalance. It's just, you know, when you have to fundamentally change the business, um, which I thought we needed to do, I mean, the business is still operating today, although it's much smaller than it used to be. You you know, I was ready to take some risk and try some new things. And Mm -hmm. she wasn't, and we're still friends. She still runs the company. I sold it to her. But anyway, so it worked out okay. So, and that that's kind of, you know, because I think, you know, you hear the really, really good partner stories. And then, there, I mean, you've got a very unique one where, that, where the, it obviously worked out. And how did the conversations start to form as you're trying to figure out? I mean, because obviously, if you're dropping two million to the bottom line, you've got a lot of options. So let's kind of, you know, focus around this, this situation of you got a very healthy business, you've got a partner in there, you know, and then you're starting to feel like you're in different strat or you know different places how did you start to tackle this problem 
Well, can I put a plug in for my book at this point? You bet. You bet. (laughs) Because that's why I wrote my book, which is called Unstuck. Um, So I felt really stuck. And a lot of business owners feel the same way. And it not only stuck in business, but kind of stuck in my personal life. It carries over to that, too. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just felt trapped. And, you know, I've talked to a lot of business owners who actually feel the exact same way. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I felt like I couldn't grow my business. I had a partner who didn't want to grow it but because we were making really good money. Um, and I just needed to try some new things. So um, there are a lot of things that I talked about in my book about why businesses get stuck, or at least why mine did, um, you know, stuck both from a, a personal standpoint, um, you know, like I just talked about. And then there are just um, rock walls that you come to as a business owner at different size levels where either the owner or the entrepreneur doesn't have the skills to take it to the next level or the inclination to take it to the next level. And uh, you just hit barriers. So businesses don't have that nice upward trending growth line that, you know, private equity firms and venture capitalists like to see. They kind of go in a series of plateaus. Mm -hmm. And from my experience, you have to crash through those plateaus. (laughs) And and it takes different skills to do it as, as the business grows. And so I hit, you know, both personal plateaus and business plateaus. Anyway, that's what I talk about in the book. Well, and I think it's a huge, huge topic. And and I think that, you know, business owners are always looking for resources because you do feel alone, very, very alone. And I'm just kind of curious, you know, as you're feeling that, and uh, I interviewed this gentleman from uh, Halftime Institute, which takes more of a Christian-based approach to this. Mm -hmm. He called it smoldering discontent, (laughs) where you've got the money, you've got the, you've got everything in the material world, but you just don't know what to do with your life. I actually read his book. That's Bob Buford, right? Yeah, Bob Buford. I wasn't (laughs) able to interview him because he's got some health issues, but uh, uh, Dean, the the CEO, and then Lloyd, who is one of the uh, um, partners, we just had some great conversations because they've got such a unique way to look at this situation. And you know, that, that, that's kind of the, the reason that they've got the Institute is to be a place to turn to. And I'm kind of curious when you, when you're going through this mental, emotional business challenge like this, who, who did you turn to and what were some of the conversations that you were having? Oh boy, that's a good question. Um, well, first of all, you do need to turn to somebody. Um, I had my part. That's one of the reasons why I brought in a partner. I think that's a, a reason a lot of people get partners. Obviously, they need the skills that the partner brings. So hopefully you have complementary skills, but also it's just a sounding board. A lot of the clients I'm currently working with have some sort of network, um, whether it's entrepreneurs organization or Vistage or Tab or Convenes, a Christian-based one. So almost all of these successful entrepreneurs I know today have some sort of sounding board they can turn to. And a lot of those have smaller, like peer groups, five or six people. Now I didn't have that in, in you know, when I was starting out, but I sure wish I did. Kind of looking back on it. So did you? I mean, yeah, no, I agree with you too. Because there's there's a lot of those groups which I think are fantastic. Because you start to realize that you're not the crazy one. That <laughs> there's a lot right. of other crazy people out there too. Um, exactly. But you know, when you, you did you find it challenging? Because you know, with, when you got the partner and I'm curious because you ended up selling to her, but like, you know, how do you have this very transparent conversation about your situation when there's also vested interest in, into the, into the situation? I mean, how did you navigate that? Well, it wasn't so hard with her because I'd known her most of my life. Um, 
So we were really good friends and still are today. So those conversations happen pretty naturally. Mm -hmm. Now, if you had a partner that wasn't like that, I think that would be an issue. Mm -hmm. So a lot of times I I work with partners now, they won't even talk to each other. So, (laughs) (laughs) Oh, gosh. uh, We we had an old silent partner. Um, My my dad, when he was growing it, he needed money. And that's how he ended up getting a silent partner. And yeah, man, you're more intertwined than than your marriage. That's for sure. And trying to trying to figure that out is not 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 a there's not easy. No, no. Right. Um, So as you're kind of going through this, this stuck phase and you're trying to figure out where you want to go next, you know, and you're figuring out what to do with the business. What, you know, how did you start exploring your options of what your way out might be? Well, it, it kind of happened on an iterative basis. I mean, we tried selling it. We, you know, listed it with a, an investment banker and spent a couple of years putting it on the market um, only to find that it was too dependent on me and my partner um, which is pretty typical, you know, if, if you're out there doing all the selling, um, the business is dependent on you. It's pretty hard to develop that cadre of people to take over for you, which is what everybody's looking at. Um, so that, that's interesting. Right? Sorry to interrupt. Cause it, sure. I mean, for you to be making $2 million like that and still have it reliant on you, that's, that's usually an interesting situation. <laughs> it is. I well, can... they all... <laughs> that's why we couldn't sell because, you know, almost everybody who looked at us was interested because we were throwing no off a lot of cash, <laughs> but they all knew it was dependent upon us. So they'd want some sort of buyout agreement. And after we looked at whatever they offered, we go, well, why don't we just keep working ourselves? I mean, we'll make just as much money. So, you know, when the buyouts involved, there's hardly any incentive over and above what we could make on our own. So, so let's, let's, let's walk into that a little bit because so you, you did you did you go to market a couple different times or was it just you find two different times, two different times. times. Yeah. So what was the process that like who did you hire? How did you find them? And what was the process that they went through to kind of bring people to the table? Well, we had an investment banker that I knew, and he was kind of a single shingle guy. Well, he still is, and he's still a friend of mine. Um, and. He specialized in bank marketing, bank and marketing technology. So he was real niche oriented and he he just was by himself, but he knew all the players in our little niche. Um, the first time since we were smaller, I think we were you know, five million in revenue at this time. So basically the type of company that was interested was a roll up, you know, so he found a few people who are trying to do roll-ups. And I don't know if you've ever had any experience with that, but they're really hard to put together. Um, so he, was he trying to do roll-ups or was there already an entity was, that had well, like the core? He was trying to find a platform company that was doing roll-ups. Okay. So he found one out in California. We got clear to the closing table, but uh, surprise, surprise, they, they didn't come up with the money. So um, who was going to be funding the roll-ups? Uh, some insurance company was funding the roll up of these two kind of guys who thought they could make it all, you know, put it all together and get synergies out of it. And so for the listener and actually maybe for the listeners, you want to kind of just describe a roll up just just to be clear. Yeah, it's like when you have um, three to five companies that have similar but different capabilities and you put them all together and. Uh, the theory is that, you know, two plus two equals six or eight or something. 
the problem is buying small companies is just as hard as buying big ones. So the difficulty in putting them all together is pretty great. And then getting, you know, four or five CEOs and their <laughs> egos um, all compatible and who's going to do what is is a bigger issue probably. So uh, in my own experience and from what I've heard, the success rate of roll-ups is pretty low. But uh, Yeah, it's interesting and in, in because – we we missed our opportunity um, with our old business to be a part of a roll-up, but it was a little bit different because Xerox, well, so it was a company called Global that ended up rolling up a bunch of office equipment dealers across the U.S. and then selling to Xerox. So they had some big mass behind them, and I honestly don't know who the original investors were, but they were already at, at fairly big mass by the time they got to us. So... Yeah, to your point, I mean, they had their they had their platform already built, and so like they were they were very difficult to negotiate with. Mm-hmm. So, so you brought it to market a couple times, then, and you know, did you get so based on was it like earnouts or something like that? A lot of them wanted to yeah. do. Okay. Yeah, and that's what I was saying. The earnouts were such that you know we wouldn't make any more with the earnouts than we were making on our own. So there really wasn't too much of an incentive to sell. So you know, going down the road with your partner, did you, you know, because of the, the philosophies that we applied to our clients today, and we can, can get into that in a little bit, but did you just, did, did you ever think to change some of the operations to make it more marketable or were you just too burnt out at that point? We did. We tried bringing somebody in to kind of be COO to run it. And the theory was that it, that would free me up to do more sales. And then eventually I could build a sales force. So I had all the missteps, you know, the COO worked, but it didn't really produce any more sales. I was out there more, but it didn't really happen. So we were dividing the pie three ways versus two. (laughs) So that wasn't so good. I tried several times bringing on a, you know, my first salesperson to do the selling instead of me, but basically to close anything, they'd have to bring me in because it was a pretty complicated sale. Mm -hmm. So we were never able to break through that hurdle. Um, and that's a big hurdle for a lot of businesses today, I think, is you know transferring that sales role from the CEO to someone else. Mm-hmm. So obviously your partner's able to to do it. So you know, as you start to have the conversation with her, it sounds like that you might do an internal transfer like that. How did, how did you guys go about tackling that did you hire like how did you value the business how did you kind of come up with the terms and conditions because i know that can be a little bit more difficult when you've got two people that know each other like that we just kind of came to an agreement on kind of what we thought the business was worth and what she would be willing to pay for it and i was so burnt out at that time i i didn't really argue too much so i just took what and we had a lot of cash. You know, I told you we were throwing off a lot of cash. So basically, I just took the cash that we had accumulated, and she took the business. So interesting. I mean, do you wish you would have done anything differently in that? Well, I look back on it now, and I don't think so. I think I was probably ready to leave. Uh, I think earlier on, I would have liked to have gotten into some different businesses. But, you know, we kind of talked about that and her reluctance to do so. So was it a clean break then because you had enough cash yeah. stored up? Mm-hmm. Wow, that is not usual when you talk. No, about no, not to. Yeah, and probably the reason why we're still friends. <laughs> I was going to say because, you know, like when you're professional services firm, I, I, there was a interview I did way back when where, you know, the biggest challenge because they've got the same situation, like 
you had or that Warlow had in his book, Built to Sell, where the most likely buyer is your partner, but it takes a long drawn out earn out. And then you're constantly scrutinizing profits and benchmarks and KPIs, even though you're not in the business. So you're mentally, you're, you're caring just as much as if you were there, but you can't do anything about it. Right. So as you, I mean, what did you do with all that cash? Did you go buy something fun? Did you take some time off? What, how did you? I took, <laughs> I took some time. I took a year off and went to culinary school. So no kidding. If, if you ever, if you ever want me to cook you dinner, just let me know. I'm, What's your favorite dish? Oh, I like to do French. I mean, uh, when you go to culinary school, you're mostly trained in French cooking, and then you kind of branch out from there. But so, so now it, it you you have a whole profession that is very similar to mine, where you're out helping business owners. Can you kind of dive into you know? I, actually, I'm just kind of curious. Kind of maybe explain to the listeners a little bit about what you're doing now, and then how you got into that. Sure. Um, well, about this is about. 10 years ago, a private equity firm hired me to do a turnaround of a company similar to the one that you and I were just talking about. In fact, we used to compete against them. And it was about 105 employees, I think. And um, so I thought I could go up there and turn it around in a couple of years. And it took seven years to get it turned around. But um, so it was a little bit more than what I thought. But anyway, um, I knew I needed to upgrade my talent when I went into this company. And since it was more employees than I was ever um, used to, I, I went looking for some kind of best practices and talent management. And I found something called top grading. So I don't know if you ever heard of that, but Jack Welch used it at General Electric. And it was really for bigger companies. But at that time, um, I guess I was one of the first smaller companies to implement top grading. And it took about two or three years to get it fully implemented, but we upgraded our talent significantly. Um, we grew the company. We got some pretty good profits. And then anyway, I was able to exit a few years ago. So um, after the exit, I went and um, decided I'd like to, I, I didn't want to own any more businesses. So, you know, I'd done enough of that. So I said, I really want to be a coach or consultant. And so I thought, I'd start with top grading since I had some firsthand experience implementing it on smaller companies. And anyway, while I was doing that, I ran into some other coaches who were doing uh, what's called gazelles. Um, and that is a strategic planning uh, consulting based on Vern Harnish's uh, Mastering Your Rockefeller Habits are now scaling up. So it's really targeted to the size of companies I'd worked in. And where you go in and do uh, long-range plans, annual plans, quarterly plans, mm -hmm. and work with companies on an ongoing basis to hold them accountable to achieving those. So I've been doing that for the last uh, five years and really enjoy it. So I love, I love it. So I want to go to kind of peel into that turnaround because I think a turnaround provides a lot of experience and uh, it sure does. kind of being part of <laughs> kind of like starting your own company oh, does. Well, probably, <laughs> probably worse sometimes for, as far as the stress but so what were some of the main issues and what were some of the things that you did to turn around because I, I i think you had said that. i mean you 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 did a pretty significant job on that and and then how what was your incentive in there did the pe firm like, did you have equity into that? So that way you had some I did. It's a small percentage, but I did have equity. And of course, they wanted me to buy some of it. You know, they want, if you ever work for private equity firms, you know, they want you to have a stake in the game. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so I had to put in some of my own cash um, to get that equity. So what were some of the main problems that, I mean, you, you mentioned talent. Um, what were some of the main issues that you saw and what did you do to, to fix them? We had all sorts of problems. The biggest one was the product ourselves. So this this company was more technology driven than the one I had before. So we actually created data warehouses. So of those 105 employees, I'd say half of them were developers or systems engineers. Wow. Uh, so it's a lot more technical than what I had done in the past. A lot of payroll. <laughs> a lot of payroll. And um, so that we had a high uh, you know, salary, as you could imagine, yep. average salary. Uh, so I guess the first biggest issue is we basically customized everything for each new client that we got. And it was really inefficient. So we had to spend a couple of years getting what I'd call the standardized data warehouse where it looked to the client like it was customized, but, you know, 80% of it was probably already done. So we could get some economies of scale in the development effort. So that was one big challenge. Second biggest challenge was, I'd say, the culture. Well, this is probably the biggest one, but um, it was a pretty dysfunctional environment when I went in there. Um, <clears throat> and it'd probably be too long to explain all the mm-hmm. reasons for that. But, uh, basically. We had to get people believing in the company again. Mm-hmm. And so I'd say that was probably the second biggest issue, along with the talent. It was just kind of talent deprived. So I'd say those were the things I concentrated the most on. So then who did you, you know, as going through, you know, your second exit or even like third time to market with a company, what was the process, you know, having a partner as a PE firm? I think, how did you go to market? Like how, kind of describe that journey. Uh, well, we used a different um, investment banking firm this time, one that was uh, more well-known in the industry. And we did the traditional way, you know, where we developed the book and then we you know, did the dog and pony shows and then kind of, you know, took it on the road and uh, had some of the same problems. You know, they're all interested in how, you know, dependent is the business on, uh, you know, the few key managers and how likely are they to stay or leave. At this case, I'd say maybe we had some really big competitors um, uh, in my second company, and um, there's really differentiation, you know, strategy became an issue. And so, uh, and when you're owned by a private equity firm, it's really hard to kind of revamp your strategy (laughs) because they, um, they're so interested in building revenue that if I said I really wanted to exit a business, like I told them, and revenues would actually go down by 25 or 30 percent, they they had no part of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but my feeling was we needed to specialize in B2B, which was kind of our core competency versus doing anything that came across the transom. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the private equity firm wasn't buying that. So we had some issues. What was it like being a partner? Because, you know, I mean, you ran the ship the last time. What was it like having financial engineers be partners like that? Well, I'll be totally honest. I hated it. <laughs> <laughs> That's probably what I expected. <laughs> How did you navigate it? It, it was totally different. Like, first of all, I wasn't prepared for it. You know, I had, I, as you just said, I, I hadn't really had a lot of practice at working for somebody. <laughs> um, they were very good financially, you know, much more so than me. But, you know, they tended to have ideas on the business 
beyond their expertise, I guess is a nice way to say it. Mm -hmm. Well, cause they're, they're, they're managing from afar, right? Correct. Well, I'd say they're managing from, from afar, but far too closely for, for what I, I, I needed. So but anyway, what are they doing? Cause I like here, I, I know a lot of PE firms and I, and there's so many in the U S that I think, you know, even if a, if, if a business owner wanted to go down that route, let's say they, they do want to partner up with a private equity and recapitalize or something, even finding the right partner could be a, like a four year journey. So, you know, were they micromanaged, like calling you every day or were they yeah, pretty much no kidding, huh? especially in the beginning. Not every day, but weekly. And so, you know, I've talked to other business owners since who had good relationships with private equity firms. So I'm not trying to cast a blanket whole industry. Well, Uh, that's kind of what I meant. Where, like, if you're going to go that route, it's, I mean, they're just people, right? So you have to understand, like, the personality traits of the people that you're going to be, you know, working with. Right. So, now that you've gone through all the, you know, you've got some really, really deep experience in, in understanding what makes a company valuable, how to grow it, you know, why don't you kind of explain the Rockefeller habits a little bit? Because um, some people may or may not be, uh, you know, totally exposed to it in the Midwest traction is a, is a big one, but I think uh, Rockefeller habits are kind of traction on steroids. But, you know, how do you apply that to business, businesses that you're working with? And understanding like how to get through that, that black hole that you referred to, or, you know, work themselves out of the business. How do you, how do you take everything you've learned in that and apply it? Well, you know, you go back to um, what I told you, I was frustrated with in my first company. And that is, you know, kind of the growth strategy for the future and, you know, how we were different and where we wanted to go. So what I've learned through uh, Gazelle's, uh, which is based on mastering your Rockefeller habits, now scaling up is um, I wish I would have known a lot of this back then. Um, Mm -hmm. But it's kind of, first of all, you have to develop any planning methodology pretty much is the same, whether it's uh, gazelles or traction or whatever. But you start with a big picture. You know, we call it a BHAG, which comes from Jim Collins' big, hairy, audacious goal, which is 10 to 15 years out. And then you break that down into a smaller kind of, uh, interim step, which is usually three years in today's world. So kind of a three-year picture. We call it a three-hag. Some people call it a painted picture. But it's kind of getting a little further out than today. And then you break that down to one year. And then as far as your ongoing execution, you break it down into quarterly increments. And you want all of those to, to align. Um, and that's what the Gazelle's methodology does. And and we lay out a what's called a one-page plan for our clients, which is really two pages. But anyway, it's uh, try to condense everything down so it's meaningful. A lot of strategic plans I had done in the past were big notebooks that sat on my credenza and you never looked at. So uh, the one thing I like about this is it's really action-oriented and meaningful. And I think it works for most small and mid-sized growth companies. So, you know, one of the things that I, that I talk to business owners with or that I wish we would have done where when you think about your big, hairy, audacious goal, or I think a lot of people, because we're all entrepreneurs and there's one way to measure your progress to other people is revenue, you know, and I think it's backing into what those goals are. I mean, so, you know, I, I did a speech called start with the end in mind, which is how, like who and how could you transfer this business and why is it valuable? So how are, how do you align that? Because I know KPIs are a big piece of that. So how do you align their goals with what they might want to be doing? 
Well, first of all, I try to get them to have KPIs. Um, you'd be surprised. Either companies, my experience has been companies either have way too many of them uh, or they have none at all. So they're, usually you want a handful, anywhere from five to 10 KPIs to help you guide the business. Um, and you want those to help you get to where you're trying to go. So that all comes up in the planning process. Mm-hmm. But you want KPIs that move the needle and you want them that are balanced. Um, you don't want it to strive so hard to do one thing. So you mentioned revenues, which happens to be a bad KPI, but I'll take that one. Uh, if you, you know, if you're concentrating on hitting revenues, what could, you know, fall off because you're concentrating on revenue so much, maybe client service, profit, <laughs> profit <laughs> customer service, <laughs> you know, so you need to have them balance out. So what is I, I work with my clients to try to get just a handful that they can use to kind of guide the company. Can you give me, you know, and, and the listeners a couple of examples, maybe a couple of industries of, because I think you're right. I mean, there should be three to five and they should essentially reflect the pulse of the business. So can you describe some of the, the ones and maybe a couple of different industries that might um, sure. make a good impact? Well, usually you have, you know, some sort of revenue, gross margin, profit one. So you have a few financial KPIs. Uh, if you're, you know, debt to equity is one. If you have to borrow a lot of money, inventory turnover. Um, you know, there's there's tons to choose from. You just have to pick the one that's most applicable for your company. The, then I try to get them to select some customer metrics. You know, one that's used a lot is NPS score, um, net promoter score, because it's easy to implement as kind of a standardized benchmark, and you can compare against other companies. Um, so that's a good one. And it also helps when you're selling the company, if you have that one, um, some sort of employee benchmark, um, employee net promoter score would be one, or your Gallup has, you know, the 12, uh, questions for employee engagement. So cause some sort of mix of customer, employee, financial cash, you know, but it's whichever one kind of fits the company the most. I have in my book, I have a list of 150 you can choose from. So That's perfect. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what I think is really important about these KPIs? I mean, all they really are in, you know, from you having a couple exits, it's it's the questions that any buyer is going to ask because they want to judge the risk of your business. Correct. So, you know, I guess. Like for a it, lot of small companies, client concentration would be a great one. Um, at least in the companies I worked on, you know, we'd have one or two. Uh, clients that were 50% of the business and it makes it almost impossible to sell your company. Well, and we, we, in Minnesota here, we've got a huge issue with that, which I know a lot of people are, but and we got a lot of fortune 500 companies where a lot of businesses will start and that'll actually fuel the growth for right. cash and capital. Exactly. And then all of a sudden they don't realize that they've got that issue. So can you, I don't know if you've got any specific stories about how you've gone about tackling that problem. Uh, well, I've tried to tackle it in every company I've owned <laughs> uh, because it's almost always a problem because of what you just mentioned. You know, the only way you can do it is grow out of it. So you have to really um, double down on new sales. And the other thing you can do is, you know, cut cut back your small customers, you know, fire some customers who are your smaller ones. And why would you do that? Well, because they can divert you too. I mean, they take more time than big customers. 
They can lead you. I mean, a lot of times you have products for those small customers that you don't sell to the others, and they just take your time away from selling and trying to get that new big customer to balance out your concentration issues. Yep. So as we're kind of wrapping up here, you know, with with your experience, Kenny, you know, what are, you know, is there something that you would want to highlight that we've touched on or maybe something that we haven't touched on that you want to make sure you leave with our listeners? Um, I'd probably say if you think you're stuck in your business and you're kind of, you know, feeling like um, you're trapped, I'd say get some help. You know, we talked about that at the very beginning, but if it's peers, you know, it's hard to talk to your wife or your spouse about it. It's hard if you have a business partner, it's hard to talk uh, to them about it sometimes because the issues you brought up because we had different interests. So I'd say, you know, try to get somebody that you can kind of bounce ideas off of. I'd say it's probably the number one takeaway. Yeah, I I think you you hit the nail on the head because it, it you don't have to be alone. And there's all these are a lot of complex issues and there's a, a lot of different ways and, you know, every, the reason you're an entrepreneur is because you want to be able to make your own decisions. <laughs> right. And there's so, a lot of people who've gone through the same problems. So yep. uh, sometimes they can help, sometimes they can't. But um, anyway, it's good to have a few other ideas. So Ken, when is the best way for our listeners to get in touch with you? Um, probably email is the best way. Kenyon, K-E-N-Y-O-N at KenyonBlunt.com. K-E-N-Y-O-N-B-L-U-N-T. And then I'll put uh, links to your book and everything in the show notes too for you. Sure. That'd be great book. And my website's kenyonblunt.com. So then go there too. Thanks for coming on the show. 